0: Get started today at plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Welcome to the best of late launch. this third week in February. We begin with Drogheda woman Emma Fitzpatrick who joined us from the Ukraine where her twins were born prematurely to a surrogate mother. Hi, Gerry. Ah, Emma, lovely to talk to you. Thanks for taking our call. And may I say first of all to you, congratulations on the birth of your twins. Tell us, when were they born?
2: Um, They were born on Monday the 3rd of February.
1: And they came a little early?
2: They did. They were just over 28 weeks when they were born. So much earlier than we had um, thought they'd be making an appearance. But I don't know, maybe they couldn't wait to meet us.
1: And their names are,
2: um, Lara and Dave.
1: And Lara was a little bit lighter than Dave. Born, yeah,
2: she was. Lara was two pounds ten ounces, and Dave was three pounds one
1: Now, listeners are saying, Jerry Kelly, late lunch. What's going on here? You're talking to this uh, Irish woman, Emma Fitzpatrick, in the Ukraine about having premature twins. Tell them why I'm talking to you in the Ukraine.
2: So we're in the Ukraine because our twins were born via a surrogate and after years of unsuccessful uh, infertility treatment, we decided that surrogacy was going to be the route uh, we would take to become parents.
1: Now, you've gone through a lot yourself and Kevin, your husband. We mean literally for years you've been trying for a baby.
2: Yeah, yeah, we've been trying for, I suppose, the last four and a half years, maybe closer to five. Um, we had a number of failed IVF cycles and we'd one ectopic pregnancy um, where I ended up having to have surgery and obviously we lost that baby.
1: So you've explored every option, natural and uh, with the fertility treatment as well, and there was no go. Was surrogacy... Um, an easy decision to make or did you take time to consider this route
2: and um, we definitely i wouldn't say it was an easy route no Um we spent lots of time you know researching it on the internet and um, looking at you know what options there were maybe at home and um, but ultimately we found that the the best thing for us would be to to go abroad
1: and do you use an agency? Did you or uh, to uh, to make this happen? Did you go through a third party?
2: We we dealt directly with a fertility clinic here okay. in the Ukraine. So we liaised with them, and we lots of emails back and forth, and copies of contracts. And then on their side, they find um, surrogate mothers and do you know. Medical checks and histories, mm. and you know, pair people up. I suppose.
1: Yeah, and and why the Ukraine again? Like it's it's, it's a wee bit away from a little old Ireland.
2: It's just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> why? Um, one of the reasons we we chose the the Ukraine was um we were familiar um with the the clinic that we we used here, um and. We also were happy with the processes they had in place for say, selecting the, the surrogate mothers. And also the, from a legal side point of view, um, everything kind of was to our advantage, you know, straight mm. away we were considered the intended parents um, of, the, of the unborn child or children. And um, children, in our case, yeah. But and um, so, so we were delighted that you know, from uh, because we got legal advice in Ireland before signing contracts or travelling to the Ukraine. So it was important to us that we knew exactly where we stood.
1: Okay. Now you make this decision, and you you decide to proceed. Do you meet the surrogate mother? Did you go out there before all this happened?
2: We first came out to the Ukraine in January 2019 to meet the clinic here and initially sign the contracts and have some um, medical tests uh, carried out. And we were given once we had, I suppose, embryos confirmed that were viable and could be used um, to, to do a transfer. We then got given service. And mother profiles. So we got um, a couple of pictures, date of birth, height, weight, and um, basic medical information regarding previous pregnancies. It's one of the prerequisites here is that they have to have successfully carried a child
1: previously. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Did you actually meet them though?
2: Um, I didn't meet our surrogate until the 12-week scan.
1: Okay, but you, you, you met them then at that stage. So you were happy based on all the information the clinic were happy to recommend. They made the match between you and this woman and uh, an embryo was implanted, which is uh, yours and your husband's.
2: Yeah, so we implanted um, two embryos to give us a slightly better chance okay. of um, a successful pregnancy rate. And we we found out it was twins. Um,
1: <laughs> that must have been uh, uh, a jump for joy. That was after six weeks, wasn't it? On the six week scan.
2: Yeah, yeah. A six week scan. They um, they emailed us to say that everything looked okay and there was two heartbeats. So we were going to have twins.
1: Lovely, lovely, lovely. Now you come back to Ireland. I take it, and the pregnancy proceeds over there with this lady.
2: It does. Yeah.
1: Okay. It wasn't plain sailing, let me tell listeners, because at 20 weeks, uh, I'd say you were just in complete panic, were you?
2: We were. I had um, come over for the the 20-week scan um, with my mother and my older sister. We all travelled and we had the scan. Everything looked great. It was a little boy and a little girl and we were delighted. And we came home and the following week, She had a doctor's appointment and they said there was a 50-50 chance of a miscarriage and they were putting her on hospital bed rest.
1: Wow. That certainly is news you do not want to hear. And after all you've been through personally... Uh, you know, going this surrogacy route and next you're facing a situation where you could lose again. But you haven't. The good news is the bed rest they're and everything here. worked and they're here. They've arrived. Little Lara and Dave are with us. Born at uh, 28 weeks, as you said. Yes, we went to 28 yeah, weeks. Yeah. And obviously, uh, did uh, w- were they taken or, or was it uh, It had to be an induced birth? Was it at that stage with the issue over the uh, the, the danger at 20 weeks?
2: Um, No, No. so the surrogate remained in hospital from 20 weeks up until birth. So on Sunday, I was at home and I got an email at about nine o'clock in the morning to say, happy Sunday, Um, she's gone into labour. Naturally? Yeah.
1: Wow. And and are you over there at this stage or in Ireland? Over there?
2: No, 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 I was at home in (laughs) um, (laughs) Drathavet. Oh, Lord. (laughs) They said, you know, they were going to try and give some medication to stop the labour. But, you know, we should probably make plans to come over in the next day or two.
1: I just see the keyboard of the phone. Bang, 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 bang. Online flights. Let's go.
2: Yeah, so we had a very, um, a very stressful day on Sunday. They did come back to us later in the day to say, you no, know, they had stopped labour for the time being. But that it could happen in a day, in two weeks they they couldn't tell Mm. so we made the decision to fly to London on Sunday night and get a flight out um, Monday morning to the Ukraine
1: and were you there for the birth or were they born while you were en route
2: they were born while we were en route while we were waiting um, in the airport we got an email to say she was in labour again and that the, the twins were going to be born today
1: did you go straight to the hospital when you arrived
2: um, we didn't. We had to wait. Um, we had to. We were picked up at the airport and brought to our hotel. And we got here at about eleven o'clock in the morning. And we had to wait probably till about four in the afternoon um, to allow the doctors to check them and see what was happening before we could go up. So it was very nerve-wracking couple of hours.
1: I'm sure it was. You were on Tenterhooks. What was it like when yourself and Kevin arrived and you saw them for the first time?
2: Um, I think we were in shock. It had obviously been a whirlwind kind of day and a half. Um, it was just unbelievable. They were they were in a separate incubator each. And um, Lara had some oxygen and a feeding tube, and Dave was on a ventilator and had a feeding tube as well so it was it was scary and um, it was overwhelming, but it was great our our babies were there
1: and you've been there ever since yeah yeah
2: we're we're here
1: <laughs> seventeen days on How are they doing yeah. how are they doing now
2: they're they're doing good um they're not in a closed-in incubator anymore. They're in an open one that's in the room, and they're in the one incubator. And, you know, we're um, we're very lucky. The hostel that they're in is amazing. And the doctor that we're dealing with speaks English, which does obviously make things easier for us. Mm. And they're doing scans of the babies the whole time um, to check their progress. And obviously because they're premature, their brain isn't developed fully, and um, as we've learnt, sometimes they literally forget to breathe, um, which is a little scary, but apparently that part of their brain isn't developed yet.
1: And that will happen, please God, over uh, the coming yeah. days and weeks and months. So you're there for the foreseeable, I take it, yeah?
2: Yes, we've been told that the babies will probably be in the hospital for around two months.
1: Right. And is... Uh The man himself with you, is Kevin staying with you or how are you going to manage this? Is there anybody else there from family?
2: Um, No, it's just the two of us here. Um, Our parents obviously really want to come out and see us, but Mm. um, no one else is allowed into the hospital. So we said, you know, we'd all kind of just be sitting in the apartment looking at each other. Um, so they're probably best waiting.
1: Yeah, indeed they are. Yeah, what else would they be doing? You're so right. This is just a, a waiting game at this stage. Now, here's the thing. So two months, they think. Um, Kevin has to do a DNA test before they you can bring them home.
2: He does, yes. So the the government um, it doesn't recognise me as the mother because I didn't give birth. So we have to have a DNA test Done here to prove that Kev is biologically the, the children's father and that they are Irish babies, so the consulate will issue us emergency travel documents to fly home.
1: Hold on a minute, this embryo is part yours, part his, and yet you cannot be recognised in law in Ireland as the mum.
2: Yes, yeah, so as Irish law stands, the, um, the woman who gives birth, is considered the mother. So after we get home, we have to start um, legal proceedings. Well, I say we, technically it's Kev. Um have to start legal proceedings to be recognised um, as the guardian. And the surrogate mother here has to sign affidavits and, to my understanding, effectively waive her rights.
1: And I take it that has all been written down and agreed and legal as part and parcel of all yeah, you've been through. Yeah,
2: that's part of our, our agreement and one of yeah. the reasons we chose the, the Ukraine, like that's all very clear. Mm. And, you know, I'm I'm sitting here and we, we've already got the birth certs for the children and, you know, it's mine and Kev's name on them.
1: Fantastic. Now, yeah. this comes at a price <laughs> and not, not a little price either, may we say, Emma.
2: No, not not at all. Um it is. It's it's um, a very expensive route. Yeah. But it was the only one we felt oh, um our option. Hmm.
1: And would you care to put a figure on it?
2: Um. I suppose realistically, we're looking at an excess of sixty thousand euro.
1: That's a lot of money.
2: Yeah, yeah. Which we, you know, we we borrowed. To, to, we didn't want to waste
0: mm.
2: years to save that or for any sort of other factors that may change in years to come. So we made the decision to to borrow the money and and run with it.
1: But let me say this: and
2: have our baby.
1: Yeah, let me say this: what you have now is priceless.
2: <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, nothing. You know, all the money that this costs, or all the money we spent having IVF. Um, yes none of it matters
1: no look look you cannot put a price on this this is just such a wonderful wonderful story and in fact you've said to every family and friends and communities want to help you and they have been helping you but you said to them look it, we have that much stuff already and i i, I know this you've been inundated uh, with gifts and uh, everything for the the children you, you you said to them look would you consider giving us a little financial dig out isn't
2: that the idea we did, yes. So um, we have obviously a number of medical expenses here that you know we weren't, I suppose, fully aware of or expecting. And our house at home is bursting with baby things, as you can imagine. <laughs> After all the years of waiting, um, I definitely shopped till I dropped <laughs> um, <laughs> to, to get everything for the babies. So we um, made the decision to ask our friends. If they were happy to, instead of maybe buying a gift for the baby, would they make a donation that yes. we could use to, you know, cover some of our medical expenses? Mm. And, you know, the we got, I suppose, an overwhelming um, amount of support from our friends and family, which we just can't thank them enough. Four.
1: Yeah, and it makes sense as well because you have this extra expense now, and you are pushed to the limit. I know this. The GoFundMe. How do how do people find you on GoFundMe?
2: Um, if you Google GoFundMe, NICU miracles.
1: Make it you... come up. Okay, say NICU, that again. We yeah. just lost you there for a second. Say that again. GoFundMe, and and what's the words you use there?
2: NICU. So it's N I C U.
1: NICU. Miracle. NICU, Miracles.
2: Yeah, and it'll come up under my name.
1: Okay, so just to say that to listeners again... If you're touched by this story if you're friends of the family they're well known NICU Miracles NICU Miracles and the, the GoFundMe is there listen to this uh, we just got a lovely message here we're getting many messages but I'll, I'll read this one to hand lads this surrogate story is simply fantastic I think it's wonderful and can totally understand anyone choosing this route I would have done anything to have a baby if I had struggled with pregnancy attempts congratulations to these lucky parents and huge kudos to the lady who carried the little babies. Isn't that nice? That's just for yourself this afternoon. Emma and Kevin and and the the pair there Lara and Dave as well and the mum who carried them. Well listen it's lovely to touch base with you today I'm going to leave it there for the moment Congratulations on your twins and the very best of luck to all of you over the coming weeks and months and please God we'll tip back to you and touch base with you down the road if that's okay Emma. That's
2: great. Thanks so much Jerry.
1: God bless you. Take care of yourself. Bye bye. We wish the Fitzpatrick family well over the coming days and weeks. Former Miss Ireland Lisa O'Sullivan Shaw, who lives in Meath, told her remarkable life story which saw the mum of four face into open heart surgery last year. It is true to say that your mum, when you were born back in 1981 in Kerry, it didn't look good?
3: Yeah, I was uh, born a blue baby and I would have presented um, at the time, you know, they didn't have much medical information on what my condition was. And they were told all sorts of uh, things like my kidneys and heart were back to front and at the wrong side and all this kind of stuff. But I was baptised anyway that day and then sent to Cork. And in Cork, they they made further investigations that I needed to be sent to Dublin. So I was flown to Dublin that night, the day I was born. And that was my first home, Crumlin
1: Hospital. For three months you spent there. But look what you came through. You had open heart surgery, what, at six weeks? At six weeks old, I had my open heart surgery.
3: I returned home to Kerry after three months out of Crumlin and led a pretty uneventful medical uh, cardiac life in Kerry um, until, um, you know, and then as you said there, went on and I had been modelling and won Miss Ireland and went to Miss Universe and and all across
1: the place <laughs> and had to go all the way to New York to, to meet a lead man Ah, what a story a love, love stories are meant to be aren't they New York City and you meet this fella but just before you tell me that when you were growing up you said uneventful were you um, minded with kid loves the cotton wool kid because of the earlier not, heart condition not a bit
3: not a bit and I don't know, it, was it, you know, on purpose or just total ignorance of, you know, the condition itself? But it was never an issue. It was never, it was always get out there and get on with it. And, you know, I had always tried to make an excuse while GA training that I couldn't run laps, but they never kind of bought into that idea. But uh, um, apart from that, no, there wasn't any sheltering at all. I don't think I ever saw a GP Um, my only checks were every year to Crumlin and that was uh, that was a day out that was a day in the train and a day to the zoo um, (laughs) as far as I was concerned brilliant Um,
1: yeah so anyway that was growing up and as you said in New York you met this man Jamie Shaw from County Meath but the Miss Ireland thing for a moment to win Miss Ireland 2002 you were Miss Ireland then on to Miss Universe must have been a great time for you
3: fantastic Fantastic. I mean, it was, it was, now you look back on it, you know, at the time, you're. I was only 20, um, you just go with the flow, because I was kind of in that world, you know, that kind of modelling world, and it was like, it was my life. I was doing three or four shows a, a week, and, you know, it was just another thing, but, like, yeah, it was a fantastic achievement, and I don't think it was until I got there. Like, there was, I think, the guts of 90 other countries in that competition, mm. and... um I mean, you know, you were with girls there who this is, you know, this is a full-time career for they go to schools um, to enter all these competitions and all that kind of stuff. But for me, I was just, as I always am, happy to go lucky, delighted to be there and it took what I could from it.
1: Now, when did you meet Jamie? What year was that you met him in New York?
3: Um... Well, I would say he saw me in 2004.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, you Kerry girls. You have to hand it to you, Kerry women. You're, you just turned the tables immediately. So he put his eyes on you. Yes. Well, to be honest, it
3: was a mutual. Okay. It was a mutual eyeing up in the Irish bars there in 2004. <sighs> and then it was in 2005 uh, we got together. Great.
1: great. And, so. and yeah. the rest is history. You went on and got married yeah. and then you moved home and you're living in County Meath.
3: Yes, we uh, moved home and we moved to Atboy and we built a house in Atboy and got married. And, uh, you know, everything cardiac-wise was great. But, you know, around the time of I getting married, they um, they did say, you know, if you're going to have your family, you should have them now mm. and um, literally I took that literally <laughs> <laughs> so
1: I, <laughs> hey talk about I, the dubs winning five
3: in a row you did four in a row don't, don't talk about let's not talk about clubs in five in a
4: row
1: that was the nearest I came to a heart attack all summer <laughs> but listen she equalled the great Kerry team you did four in a row yourself folks this woman had four and there were no twins in these four no four no, pregnancies
3: no four 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 pregnancies yeah and four four babies in four years four boys
1: now listen here, you. Can I have, can I pick a crow with you? You were told that you know have them early, all right. Maybe one, two, but four of them, and all. We have to say they were high-risk pregnancies.
3: They were high-risk pregnancies, yes. But I must say the care I got was fantastic because they have a cardiac team in the Rotunda, so they share they share care between the Rotunda and the Mater, and you know again I do think. Looking back, probably naivety. You know, I wanted to have. Uh, I always wanted a big family, and um, it wasn't until I was pregnant on my fourth. They said to me, "Okay, now do you think this? Will, do you think this was it?" And I said, De- "Definitely." I said, "No matter what, this is it. Um, this is the, the fourth and final installment, as I call it." But. Um, <laughs> Yeah, um, it you know it was it was something I was conscious of as well because along one of my pregnancies, I was told by one of the doctors, you know, if this was ten years ago, we may have allowed you to have one. Mm. So I think, oh, God, because that's all I ever wanted. So I, you know, I always yes. wanted the family.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, so. there you have it. And, you know, all Mead supporters listening today are out there overjoyed. And thank you sincerely, because at last, Mead may have four men with Kerry blood that can transform this county team at long last.
3: Well, Jerry, I may burst your bubble there. <gasps> because oh. I have four Mead men who are trapped in Kerry men's bodies, Aww. as I call it. They are They have a mission they want to, When they do the leading search They're going to college in Kerry They're going to live with Nanny Kerry And they're going to play for Kerry
1: <laughs> uh, The Mead County Board Chairman and Secretary Are onto this immediately Don't think this is ending here Now leave that aside for a moment Let's get back to you Because this is some story you have After you have the boys then And we roll on a little bit You mm-hmm. started to feel a lack of energy Was it tiredness?
3: Yeah, it was, um, you know, it was coming up to a time when they were all very routine in their sleep and, you know, we kind of had everything, um, everything had a set time and, you know, I was on the verge of kind of going returning to work and I had returned, um, I work in Dr Doyle's in Trim uh, two days a week. And, you know, the tiredness was kind of unexplained tiredness. You know, it wasn't, I couldn't shake it. There were some days when I'd go to the gym after dropping the kids in preschool and stuff. And I would come home and I would have loved to. And I could have physically gone to bed for the day. Obviously, I couldn't do that because I had uh, the children. But it was just this kind of unshakable tiredness. And then I noticed my breathing was kind of getting harder and, uh, you know, a little bit more palpitation. So I went to the GP, my own GP, and um, did bloods and expecting my bloods and my iron to come back very low and nothing was coming back. And I said, sure, I'll just wait for my cardiac review then during the summer. And then did my cardiac review because I always have uh, my appointments in the car- in the matter are always in the summertime. Mm. And um, before I nearly got to say anything, they had, you know, looked at the ECGs and or in the Echoes. And they came into the room and closed the door and sat opposite you, and you know that's not good (laughs) when uh, they do things like that. And they, just before, you know, I was elaborating to the the nurse, you know, how I was feeling. They said, we're after spotting a change, that the right side of the heart is is more enlarged than it had been, and that you're overworking by 40%. And so we're going to do, we're just not going to panic, we're going to sit back and kind of start doing our, our diagnostic tests. So a few months followed of um, uh, more ECGs, ECHOs, angiogram, cardiac MRI. And then at that stage, there was, yes, the the, the valve needs to be changed. Uh, It's not functioning at all um, properly. Um, But the case at that time was, and always was, that this would be done through this new procedure, through the groin.
1: Yes, yes, they can do so much with the heart by entering through the groin nowadays.
3: Yes, and that was the way that I had. That's why there was no, I, there was no alert for me at all. You know, there was no red flags about any open heart surgery. It was never on the table. And then it was after Christmas last year that I got the the call, the devastating call, as I call it. Like, I still uh, don't like to recall that that phone call, but it was from the matter to say that they tried everything. They had tried to get this valve. But they couldn't actually; they weren't able to get into it. The valve was too big, and they didn't. They described it as like a door frame that I had no frame to sit into. So they had to go in through the chest to create the frame for the valve to sit into.
1: So this meant open heart surgery.
3: So this meant open heart, worst nightmare.
1: Yeah, surgery. You, you didn't take this well because I've uh, I'm, I'm familiar with your story. This was very difficult for you.
3: Extremely. Extremely. I mean, that was the start of a whole new world of anxiety and fear. And it was pure and utter fear. That's what I would call it. Um, just can't get yourself together at all. You just you know, I I was fortunate that my cardiothoracic surgeon, who I met pretty quickly after that, I met him in the Black Rock Clinic, and he was actually a carryman, of course. <laughs> and as I said, that was an omen. Um, But he was Dr. Lars Nolke, and he was just amazing. And I would say his care brought me on a lot. Um, He's a caregiving kind of a nature. Mm. And, you know, he explained everything. Um, Of course, the initial meeting with him was me with my notebook and my questions and what kind of a saw are you going to use and what's the worst that can happen. And the words death and stroke were mentioned, and that's all I took out of that meeting. You know, I came home, it wasn't my husband was the one who kind of read through the questions again and this is what he said and do you remember this is what he said. But for me, all I could see was who would be here if something happened to me for my boys.
1: And isn't that just natural for a mum to think that when you're facing into this hugely difficult procedure? Now, when did the operation happen?
3: So the ball got... Uh, moving pretty quickly after that phone call it was a case of it's going to be routine surgery but we need it sooner rather than later so after I, after that phone call I, I, I met the cardiac surgeon fairly quickly within a few weeks and uh, uh, basically we had sat down because I had to figure out a block of when is the best time for the family because I needed a block where the children were at school the longest mm. because recovery time is quite hard on the whole family that, you know, the children wouldn't be allowed to come and jump beside me and all this kind of stuff. So we penciled in Easter. I went in uh, Easter Monday because that gave me the biggest block. Then for recovery, uh, the kids were in school for a whole nine week block from Easter to the summer holidays.
1: Yes, so that was the time operation happened. Then you you weren't uh, in hospital too long after the surgery. No,
3: um, I was probably left out a few days earlier than I then scheduled. Let's say. Well, I think he he thought that um, I needed to be at home. I, I just, it was in that frame of mind, I needed to be home with my own children uh, because the two small ones weren't able to come in. They wouldn't have been allowed in to see me. And my two older ones came. I had the operation on a Tuesday morning and my two older ones came on the Sunday and their faces, they were very frightened. Mm. Um, so I just wanted to, I wanted this part of the life to be this part to just be stop, be
1: over and go home. So he did let me out a few days earlier. And we have to say, Jamie became your full-time carer for the next four or so months. He he was off work and he looked after you and did everything for you. From your story, I read, you know, the the physical recovery was one thing. But Mm -hmm. is it fair to say that on the mental side, psychologically, was Mm -hmm. even a greater challenge?
3: that's what i would say to anyone that asked me how are you now and i'd say physically physically i'm great psychologically better mm-hmm. um for me um you know it doesn't happen for everybody both the the last sash sat after the surgery and you know sat opposite me in on the bed and he said you're totally entitled to your tears um this is totally normal uh, heart patients uh, suffer a lot psychologically." And especially people in their mid years with young children. This is their first life event, and it's the first time you probably really are faced with, "I need to be here." Mm. What if I'm not here? What happens? And all these things race through your mind. You know, I, I imagine the, will the boys ever kiss me? You know, will I ever feel a beard on them? Will I be there for their wedding? Tormentation. I would call it pure and utter tormentation. You go through.
1: Lisa, just coming back to, you know, pre the surgery, your worries. And you you were telling me there about the uh, mental side of things afterwards. But, you know, when you go down for the surgery and then when you woke up, you know, when you're Mm -hmm. coming to. Do you remember that that those moments, you know, that time?
3: Very much so. Yeah, Um, I was, um, I had, I was fortunate enough that and and unfortunate for my father-in-law. My father-in-law actually had a similar Surgery ten weeks prior to me, so um, I had been in the ICU uh, the day after his surgery, and I got my shock and my my scaredness there to see, you know, what what the setup would be, what would I be like the day after, mm. and you know I was conscious that uh, my father-in-law probably didn't know we were there, or you know even though we were talking to him and he probably wouldn't remember much about that, and because my biggest fear was. When I went down, um, you know, I had said to them, the last thing I remember saying is, you need to wake me up because I have small babies at home. And that's the last thing I said. And then I had my husband, Jamie, trained into whispering the whole time into my ear because I had a breathing tube down. I wouldn't be able to speak. Um, trained just to say, it's okay, you're alive. You're here, everything is fine. So he repeated that all day. Could you hear um, it? I could hear it, yeah. I could hear it. I could hear my mother. I couldn't really see them because it was really much uh, in and out of consciousness. Uh, But they told me that I um, was writing on their hands, take me home. I want to go home all the time.
1: Isn't (laughs) that amazing just to hear that? You know that people often talk about coming out of procedures what they hear or don't hear, how they react that is simply amazing but let's move on because time will beat us here when you got home and Jamie's caring for you and uh, the boys I know are being extra careful around you, they understand even though they're small that mum has come through something big. Tell me about that time you started to lose your breath because there have been bumps on this road for you Um,
3: Initially starting to lose my breath um, was just You know, going back to the you know before I even got investigated, it was just just a a gradual kind of a thing. You know, I suppose if you stopped and thought about it, I would have said, "Oh yeah, maybe it is the heart." Yes. But um, that was the last thing you know that I thought of because I do mind myself very well. I don't drink. any Smoke. Um, I go to the gym and quite active, so I thought, "Well, I'm taking care of my side of things." Then you know, everything else should be taken care yes, of. Yes,
1: and, and obviously... But you know when you got home and you're in recovery, there's one instance you talk about there that, you know, you felt you couldn't breathe. You had this anxiety.
3: Oh, yeah. That was... It. I've suffered very much with that uh, post-surgery because initially you can't... Um, it's very hard to breathe anyway, physically. Mm. Um, you know, so even, you feel like you're gasping and that's quite scary. And then anxiety kind of feeds into that... And I experienced, I think, my first proper anxiety attack about a week um, after coming home. My husband put me in the car and went to Drogheda to my sister-in-law, to Jamie's sister Tara and her family and, you know, just to get me out of the house. And um, it was, you know, I was kind of out of the house for the first time and everything was a fear for me. The drive up was a fear, the car, you know, something, something, somebody crashes into us, you know, I I felt very fragile, I suppose is the word. And then when I got home, I suppose... All of that fear had just became crippling, and I, the breathing got very hard, couldn't gasp, and I was nearly on my knees. And we were at the stage where Jamie put the boys to bed, and he came back downstairs, and I was on the ground. I said I can't breathe. I think I'm having a heart attack. I really thought I was having a heart attack because I'm not very well up on all this stuff, but apparently, that the body mimics, you know, um, you know, symptoms of of having one. Mm. And um, you know, he was in a, a split decision of, you know, will I ring the ambulance or will I ring, you know, um so in he chose to, he he rang the the matter have a uh, a helpline for for people after having a cardiac um operation. And he described the symptoms and what was going on and they said it's most likely and you know, he's having anxiety attack. But my whole body like I had to be he put me to bed and my whole body was shaken and it was just a horrible experience and then it kind of fed from, from there for a little while for a short while there was um, more or lesser instances like that
1: Yes a- along the way but I'm going to tell listeners when we called you she was in the gym this one she's in the gym and uh, exercising today and uh, uh, couldn't chat to us until that was done but look at bit by bit you're making your way and you're getting there it's not a year yet since the surgery Um No how would you describe yourself if, it, if you were at 10, you know, before this all came upon you? What number from zero to 10 are you at today?
3: Um, I would say, I suppose it all depends on the day and what's going on. Um, but mostly, I would say I'm eight to the nine. Very good. Know? At, at the minute, um, which is very hard to see, you know, when you're back in those, in that, you know, sitting in the hospital room and, you know, you're asking him, you know, you've, you've said to the surgeon, why did you do this? Like, I won't be able to drive my children to school in September. I really did not believe that I would be able to drive them to school in September. Mm. But you did. Um, but you did. Yeah, <laughs> I did. And, uh,
1: uh, and the boys themselves, you do say that uh, it had an impact on them.
3: Yeah. um my youngest was only 3 at the time so he was still off jumping around the place living his best life didn't know what was going on <laughs> which was which was great. And um, my oldest was 7 but he's a very wise 7 and he's a very much a mommy's boy and I explained everything in um age appropriate kind of things I didn't want to scare him but he was very much in he, he knows me and he you know he 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 knew my fears. Um, even though I never said it but he was the one nearly reassuring me you'll be okay mummy. you're not going to die and don't be worried and all this but my two middle boys uh, Dylan and Ryan, they were four and five too young to understand but still were very conscious of something going on and uh, they, they are probably the ones who most suffer now um, a little bit of separate which they never had separation anxiety or anything like that but um, you know there's, sometimes there can be tears at night and you know what if something happens Mammy, while daddy's gone to training or whatever or gone to work or um, you know one of the boys is very preoccupied and how old will I be when, when you die mommy and that's heartbreaking you know to have to answer those things because
1: you know, you have to be very, very old and you'll be very, very old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they're only know, little lads, you know, and their minds and are... are you, great yes, looking at them. Yes, and you know, mammy and daddy are the world to them and their safety and comfort as well. Well, can I tell you this? Uh, that meeting in New York, that fella Jamie met one in a million and what a mammy those four boys have. You're absolutely inspirational, may I say, today as we finish off this uh, short conversation. I wish you well, that your recovery will continue and uh, that you'll have a long and long and happy life with your husband and with your children and family as well. Thank you for talking to us, Lisa.
3: Great. Thanks for million, Jerry.
1: Isn't Lisa some woman for one woman? And while on the subject of strong women, Ruth Angela Bernadette just wouldn't accept that her daughter Rosemary would never fit in and achieve in life. You're a lone parent and you give birth to a little girl called Rosemary. The early years, it's fair to say, she didn't enjoy good health at all.
4: No, uh, really, she she got sick an awful lot. Uh, I'd say she was sick every two weeks out of a month. Um, upper respiratory infections, ear infections, stomach bugs. No, she was a poorly little girl. Uh, I remember getting called in to the CEO's office one day and asked, why are you off so much? And I was told, well, I said, well, my daughter's sick and I have to take time off to to care for her. Uh, and I was told more or less to say, well, look, um, I know you work from home and I know you make up the hours, but you're just going to have to do something about this. I know your child's sick a lot, but you're just going to have to make it into office, into the office more often. Um, so that's really where it started. No, she didn't enjoy good health uh, in the formative years.
1: Uh, and that incident with the with the boss at work would just enrage you as, as you read it and, and, and you write it. But here's the thing. Almost suddenly, her health then improved and she had, what, about four years and there wasn't a bother in her. When did that happen? What age was that?
4: There was there were two periods in her life. Up until she was four, mm. uh, four or five, she was sick nearly all the time. OK. Uh, two weeks out of every month, as I said. And then, suddenly, it all flipped and she never got sick for four years. Now, when I say never, she did not. She barely cleared her throat in, in the space of four years. Um... A lot of children on the autism spectrum, there are a lot of comorbidities and there are a lot of little things that, you know, that aren't great, especially with their guts. Uh, But yes, four years of being sick all the time, then four years of never being sick. And then when she hit about eight years old, normal.
1: Isn't that just amazing? Nearly, you know, in in, in blocks of four. Now, her behaviour, let's talk about her behaviour in the nursery where she went. Mm. It was erratic you'd have to Mm -hmm. say and Mm -hmm. and they came to you and said listen ruth angela we think you should have this wee lady assessed now you felt did you feel a, a blow to you personally when when they said this to you
4: no i mean there were signs before that um I hadn't really joined the dots up at that point. Uh, She was walking on her tippy toes. She was flapping her hands. And she had a fixed repertoire of questions that required a stock answer. So if I didn't give her the answer she expected or if I didn't give her the answer quickly enough, she'd go into a meltdown. She watched the same DVDs over and over. She played the same games over and over. And as I said, asked the same questions all the time. So, no, things weren't, things were a little bit odd with her and Mm. her language was a bit delayed. So really, um, when the nursery manager suggested that she get assessed for autism, I really had not joined up the dots. She, I mean, she looked at people in the eye if she was comfortable in their company and she had a lovely little personality a cheeky little madam and that's what i loved about her so really i knew there was something but i couldn't quite put my finger on what exactly was wrong
1: you got the confirmation when yes. she was assessed and it was confirmed that she was on the spectrum yes she had autism um you know when you're actually told you said you didn't join the dots then you're told mm-hmm. was there a relief or Panic or worry? What were your feelings
4: Oh, a lot. I suppose the initial one was relief because it was relief that it wasn't my fault and that it wasn't just that I was a bad mum. There was a reason why she was behaving the way she was behaving. Mm. I'd also twigged the weekend before. She, I, I had asked her to do some colouring in for me. And when I came back into the room, all the pens were lined up End to end, across from one end of the room to the other, and it was really seeing that the weekend before she was diagnosed. That's when the jigsaw places really fell into place for me. But yes, she did get the diagnosis. I suppose it, initially it was relief that you know I wasn't going mad, I wasn't imagining things, and there was a reason for my daughter's behaviour. But also blind panic. It's it's um, what am I going to do now? Mm. Um, who's going to look after her when i 'm gone um, I mean my knee jerk reaction was right i 'll get really fit and uh, I used to run marathons I- I before I had her, and I thought i 'll get really really fit and i'll i 'll live till well into my nineties so i'm i 'm able to look after her for a long time before I die and you know panic it was this big black cloud of worry about her being vulnerable, her being preyed upon. Yes. Uh, it, it wasn't. It wasn't a good time for me.
1: And that's a natural reaction mm-hmm. to when you get a confirmation news of this. Um, she then went to what you call a, a special school. Special school, yes. And fair to say, you were never convinced about that school.
4: No, I suppose suppose it's a theme running through my book all the time of this feeling of something's just not right. My gut instinct is telling me something's not right. I mean, on paper, she was going to a special school. There were five kids in the class and four teachers. Now, where would you get that ratio anywhere else? I mean, you know, this, this is perfect on paper. It also, it even had like a soft play area and a bouncy trampoline. If they were having a meltdown, they could bounce their troubles away on the trampoline. I thought, like, where else would you get a school like this? So on paper, it was, it was the best place for her. But as she, she, I think she spent about two years in that school. As the months went by, my gut feeling became more and more loud hmm. that something wasn't quite right.
1: Never mind, you're good. What about that slip disc in your back? The <laughs> slip disc in
4: my back, yes. That,
1: you know, you were off work with this slip uh-huh, disc, let yeah. me tell listeners, and you weren't happy and you, mm. you start to do some research mm-hmm. yourself mm-hmm. and you come across this thing called the Sunrise Programme, a play-based programme. In the United States. And I just want to read a few lines mm-hmm. of the book. You say, the Autism Treatment Centre of America. I clicked on the link and started to read about their Sunrise programme. Your child's potential is limitless, the website said. While we certainly cannot predict that any given child will achieve, we do not believe any child or parent is served when others decide in advance what that child will not achieve. I stopped dead in my tracks.
4: Yes, I did stop dead in my tracks. I remember reading that and I remember thinking, no, that's not right. And I read it again and I remember my hands literally freezing over the keyboard. And it had, it had taken something like that really to point it out to me that because she had a piece of paper with uh, uh, a word with the letter A on it, People were just giving up on her. They were writing her off. They're saying she'll never do this. She'll never do that. She'll always struggle with this. She'll, she'll always struggle with that. And I thought to myself, Have I joined them? Have I given up on her? Am I just sending her off to this special school? I've got, uh, you know, I've the bar that I had raised for her has, has now been brought right down. My expectations are have dropped significantly since she's received this diagnosis. Had I also given up on her? So that's really what piqued my interest. And I started reading more about this Sunrise programme. It's an alternative to ABA. A lot of autism parents will be familiar with ABA or Applied Behavioural Analysis. I suppose it it does the same sort of thing. It's play-based therapy, behavioural therapy for people on the autism spectrum. But it's done in a different way. It starts with you joining your child in their special world. So if your child loves running up and down the room with a wooden spin in their hand, you run up and down the room with a wooden spin in your hand. Or if your child loves to spin plates, you spin plates. So you join your child in their special world. And when they're ready and not before, when they're ready, bit by bit, you bring the child by the hand back into your world.
1: Well described in in a few lines because I know there is a lot more to this than, Mm -hmm. you know. And you, of course, being the woman you are, said to your parents, listen... I'm going to the States.
4: I bought a ticket. <laughs>
1: got it. This woman got the ticket on the plane and away she went. Mm-hmm. And you learned. You became a student yourself over there.
4: Absolutely. It was a week-long course. Um, I think they've changed it now. I think they do it online now. Mm. But at the time, uh, I, most people fly over to the States to do it. There was people from all over the world. I made friends with a lovely girl from Bangladesh. <laughs> people from all over the world there at it. And it was a week and uh, we learnt how to implement the Sunrise programme at home when, you're, when you get home. And it's, it's very much parent led. You're not relying on a qualified professional to do this, you know, therapy work like ABA might be. Uh, you, the parent does it themselves. So I learnt that for a week and I was just about to come home. And I had breakfast with a young man and started chatting to him. And by the end of the conversation, I had realised that this young man from between the ages of two and five, he had been severely autistic. His parents implemented a Sunrise programme for him. He is now a qualified journalist. Uh, He had flown from San Diego to Massachusetts by himself and had volunteered at the Sunrise Programme for a week. I hadn't met him until that day, but he had worked there for a week and then he was going to be flying back home and then over to LA to buy himself a flat because he'd got himself his first job in an LA newspaper. And I thought that's what I want for my daughter.
1: And this is Lou you talk that's about That's Lou at the breakfast yeah, table. And I had those lines you say at the end of uh, it's on page 89 of the book as you get on the plane to fly home are brilliant. You know what I mean? We were going to do this you say. I made myself a solemn promise that Rosemary and I would come back to New York to celebrate our 16th birthday. Well that's it, mm. d- d- coming up, in, coming in, up. In, in a wee while. We, uh, we were going to do the impossible. Rosemary was going to overcome our autism difficulties just like Lou did. Did she would be independent and she too would follow her dreams? Lou was a journalist. Well, I always said Rosemary would make a great nurse, didn't she would I? And that, part, that uh, chapter actually finishes uh, like that. Um, look, the school you mentioned there mm-hmm. that she was in for a couple of years was mm-hmm. it at that school where the teacher told you she hadn't been taught for 18 months or had she moved to a different school? No, that was the same that special school. school. I felt when I read that in the book, how did you not punch? That person. Now, I'm not advocating violence. Mm-hmm. Imagine being told, as her mum, when you were called in, and not being told for eighteen months that the teacher she was assigned
4: hadn't taught her anything—nothing for eighteen months—and I couldn't believe it. Uh, I came in for a meeting. It was—it was a general um, annual review. And I came into the meeting and I sat down and I was all fired up with the Sunrise programme. And I thought, oh, maybe she's seen a little bit of difference in Rosemary. And maybe Rosemary's her eye contact is is more, uh, is more better with, with people she doesn't know. And maybe she's been a little bit more spon- spontaneous, a little bit more flexible. And I was all fired up and I couldn't wait for this meeting. And I sat at the meeting and, yeah, the teacher told me that she hadn't taught her anything in over 18 months and when I queried why, I mean, why on earth are you only telling me this now? Why did you leave this 18 months to tell me? And she just, it was as if it wasn't a big deal. And for me, it was a huge deal. I mean, I sent my daughter to school to get to learn how to read and write and to count and to do maths and learn the three hours. But she had taught her absolutely nothing. And then when I pressed the matter further, she then told me that my daughter got on her nerves.
1: Now, let's come back to the letter arriving, with all that crazy news on it that you knew was just absolutely, totally wrong. You know your girl mm-hmm. and you think, do you know what I'm thinking? Do you have to, you know, be your child's champion yourself? And if you're not, the system doesn't want to know. Or did you feel the system was railing against you? Uh,
4: both. Uh, yes, I did feel the system was railing against me. Uh Unfortunately super kids rely on super mums to speak up for them. You've got to be assertive, you've got to stand your ground and you've got to know enough to be able to hold your own in a conversation with with experts in their field. It's, It's scary, it's daunting. And uh, there's a term term out there called warrior mums. Uh, These fierce mums who are advocating for their children and become very scary biscuits mums. And yes, I became a warrior mum and I became a scary biscuits mum, but it was worth it because to be very honest with you, very few people care. About your child. They are not going to stand up for your child as much as you are. Nobody advocates for your child more than you do. Um, So yes, I very much felt that way. Um, I received a letter in the post saying, oh, by the way, in addition to her autism and her language delay, she's also moderately learning disabled. And I thought, what a load of rubbish. I knew my child was very, very smart. My child had inherited her grandfather's mathematics genes. My father is great at maths, he's an accountant by trade and his maths in his head is absolutely amazing. And Rosemary inherited that gene. She could do maths quicker than I could. She can spell better than most of us can. And I knew she was a clever, clever little girl. So I did not pay any attention to this bit of paper in the post. And I just thought, well, if the mountain will not come to Mohammed, then Mohammed will come to the mountain. So I homeschooled her and I did her speech and language work as well.
1: And, of course, the Sunrise programme, part and parcel of all of this. There was a Mr Jeffrey in this book.
4: Oh, yes. The lovely Mr Jeffrey,
1: And a bully. A a bully who threatened you with social services. Yes. Am I wrong in saying that that's what they turn to? They try to turn the tables and not listen to you and not want to know what you're saying to them. To say, we are who we are, Mm -hmm. we're doing it our Mm -hmm. way and you Mm -hmm. must conform.
4: Absolutely. I mean... I think I was just very unlucky in my circumstances. But yes, I did feel that there was an element of, but you're just a mum. What on earth do you know? And I am the expert and I know more than you do. But I mean, that's the first secret of the 10 secrets in my book. You and you alone are the experts on your child. Nobody knows your child better than you do. Um, yes, I was a bit taken aback. Uh, to be honest, in fairness, in the man's defence, I would probably say it was him trying to just win an argument. Mm. I think he had he had found that he had lost the argument, and he was just trying to come back with with a smart parting shot. But I was just as assertive as he was.
1: (laughs) (laughs) She went to a small mainstream school, which I have to say, there is light in this book and a lot of light as well, Mm -hmm. which you were very happy with. You got a good vibe about that from the word go. And really that school, as well as your homeschooling and the Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, Sunrise programme, all coming together to make Rosemary the wonderful young lady she is today top of the class, she was top of the class. Tell us about that assessment. You oh, yeah. must have just screamed for Joy, did you?
4: Well, yes, it was It was in between. She was. It was the summer and she was going to be moving from the special school now to, to the mainstream school and I knew that they hadn't been teaching her. Her reading had been delayed and so I thought, well, I'll tell you what, I'll go and get her a little tutor in the summer and we'll, we'll bring her up to speed. And we brought her to see this man. He was a lovely man and he sat her down in front of the computer and he came to me and he said, look, I'm really sorry, but uh, I can't teach your child. And I said, well, why not? And he said, she's unteachable. And he must have seen the look on my face. He says, oh, oh, oh I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. The w- I didn't mean it the way it came out. It's just that she just doesn't understand the questions on the paper. So she can't understand the maths questions. So it's impacting on her maths as well. I'm sorry. I, I, I can't teach your child. She's unteachable. So I marched out of there and I wasn't very happy and Rosemary said to me, Mummy, Mummy, can we come back and play with the computer again? And I said, No, no, you're not. And she said, Why not? And I said, Because you're too clever, that's why. So, uh, fast forward a couple of years after, I brought her back to the same tutor during the summer And when it was going, she was going to be transitioning from primary school to secondary school. And I came in and I said, hello, my daughter's going to be going to secondary school next year. And I thought maybe we could do some extra tuition during the summer. And he tested her and he came back into me and he said, "Uh, well, what do you want me to do? I mean, I'm not sure what I can do for your daughter. And I said, well, I just really want to keep her brain ticking over the summer. He says, yeah. Oh, well, she'll get a good head start on everybody in this, in this September then, won't she? Oh, she's a very clever little girl. And then he stopped and he said, I'm sorry, have we met? And I looked at him, I said, mm, I'm not sure now. I'm not sure we have at all. And it was the same tutor.
1: <laughs> oh, marvellous, marvellous. So here she is. She has the ability.
4: She does. She has. She's it, very capable. She talks of it.
1: Such a capable young uh, lady she is. Now, she had to still go to the nursery. You work, of course, uh-huh. and went summer holidays and that. She had a bit of a meltdown in the nursery. But uh-huh. nothing to do with autism or that.
4: No. Uh- Um, Yes, at the time, um, I had found out when I was at sunrise, a lot of parents chose to remove gluten and dairy out of the child's diet. Nothing to do with intolerances. Mm. Uh, And I just sort of let that sort of wash over me. I wasn't really interested in that. But then I realised something was bothering her. Her ears were roaring red and I would have to give her an antihistamine. Something was bothering her. Uh, So I did eventually get her tested and she actually tested as highly intolerant, bordering on allergic to dairy and gluten and corn and soy and cantaloupe melon. So I thought to myself, right, it's disagreeing with her. I'm going to have to remove these foodstuffs out of her diet for maybe a year, maybe two years, see how it goes. And I thought, well, I'll also reduce the refined sugar because everybody knows refined sugar is bad for children. So I changed her diet and she was going to the nursery during the summer holidays and she hadn't had a breakdown and it was only because that I had been, um, you know, speaking to other autism parents who had yes. also gone through the whole diet thing and realised that she was going through withdrawal, <laughs> probably sugar withdrawal, and that's what it was. That's what, it and was. that was it
1: was. And then, of uh-huh. course, with time, that just worked its that just way worked out. Its way out. Listen, I have only a few minutes left. I want to get to a few things. Um, it took its toll on you, I know, yes, and it you did. write about that in the mm-hmm. book, but. Thankfully, you've it took a toll personally and financially, of course, Anya, mm-hmm. but you've come again sailing through from both aspects. There are the 10 secrets you mention yes. in the back, at the back end of this book. You mm-hmm. detail what's involved for others, hoping that they will be able to take from your experience and put it into action with their children. Yes. You still have a day job. You're flying along yourself f- on, the yes, so fly you- along on the day job. Yes, I fly
4: along in the day job full time. Yes. Super and mum in the evenings. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you want to give away some copies of the book. And let me tell you, this has hit number one in Amazon. Yes, congratulations Thank to you. you this week. And it doesn't release, actually, until the 3rd of March. Not officially. 3rd of March. Uh,
4: and is this your first interview about the book? This is my second, second? interview, Okay, it's my first interview at home.
1: Ah, oh, fantastic, fantastic. I appreciate it. How can they get copies of your book? Tell them.
4: If you go to my website, ruthangelabernadette.com, and then go to the competition page... All you have to do is fill in your name and your email address. And tomorrow at noon, you have to do it before tomorrow at noon. And tomorrow at noon, I'm going to be selecting or the super kid Rosemary, the girl wonder herself, will be selecting three people at random to get a free signed copy of my book in advance of its worldwide release date so you'll be the first people in the world to get a copy of it
1: Brilliant The website again give it once more
4: RuthAngelaBernadette.com
1: So it's all the one word Ruth Angela Bernadette. the three uh, Christian names there all joined together.com. and the uh, competition is there get in put in your email address and the best of luck to you I have to say I love books and we love books on Late Lunch and we have our book club and I read many books. This book is marvellous. It's inspiring. It's uplifting. And let me say to you again, Ruth Angela, you are a fantastic woman. You really are. And Rosemary has the most wonderful mum. May I wish Rosemary and yourself all the very best. And thank you for bringing your story to us on Late Lunch today.
4: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: Yes, a mammy in a million for sure. Do join us next time for more of the best of late lunch and be sure to tune in each afternoon from 1.30 on your station, LMFM.
4: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. Work.